message there is there too. I hope you can sing. I mean, you may not be a good singer, but I hope you can sing. You know what I mean? First Chronicles chapter 4. First Chronicles chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 9. Again, we unveiled our theme for this year. And of course, it's posted here on our screens, Never Settle. And that's what we're going to be focusing on over these next few uh, weeks and months. And as we uh, direct our attention to never settling, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, kind of um, summarizing very quickly what we spoke about Sunday night. Then we're going to uh, look at a couple issues. I want to talk a little bit about why we settle. And then I want to begin getting into this idea of understanding some characteristics and qualities that some of the Bible characters, Bible characters have revealed to us uh, that never settled. And if we can embrace those characteristics and qualities that they possessed, then we too will never settle, and that's important. And uh, so, uh, again, let's uh, get into this here a little bit. First Chronicles chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. <clears throat> Jabez was more honorable than his brethren, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. 
Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, that thine hand might be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. Again, we began last week uh, on Sunday night uh, presenting our theme, and we started talking and addressing this issue of Jabez. We talked about him, and these are our theme verses, if you will, and there's a statement at the bottom, of course, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coasts, never settle. And we said that Jabez was a well-known doctor of the law, that his reputation drew so many scribes and learned men around him that literally they named a town after him. So what is it about the life of Jabez that I believe makes for a very powerful theme in 2021? Well, Jabez never settled. He never settled. Jabez always wanted to accomplish and do more for God. He, he always pursued a stronger, more fervent relationship with God. He always sought to perfect his character by fleeing from Satan and sin in hopes of escaping its chains and consequences. We note that even in just verse 10, we've discussed it, we developed it some in this last Sunday night that we were together. Jabez never settled. Again, my concern is that the high ideals, the elevated personal expectations, the pursuit of excellence that was once embraced by most has been replaced with an apathy, a laziness, a lethargy that lends itself to literally mediocrity. We have been programmed to accept less than perfect, to accept good instead of the best, to be content with just getting by today, it seems. Jabez and so many other men and women in the Word of God, they point out that we can never, ever settle. We must pursue excellence. We must reach for the stars. We said that we were saved by accepting perfection. Perfection now lives within us. The word of God that we live by is perfect. As believers, we are called to perfection and will be judged by a perfect standard. And our perfect Savior will only be happy with a perfect effort. We can't settle for doing well. We can only be happy with doing our best. We can't settle for making it. We must only be happy when reaching our potential. We can't be content with mediocrity. We can never settle. Whether it's our marriages, our child rearing, our walk with Christ, our ministry, or our place in life itself, we can never, ever settle. F.B. Meyer once said, let us be inspired with a holy ambition to get all that God's willing to bestow. We then went on to note five outcomes in the lives of those whose mindset is to never settle. We said we're less likely to waste time that way. If you've got a mindset of never settling, you're bound to obtain goals. You're sure to accomplish more for God than you would have if you didn't have that mindset. We said that to have the mindset of never settling, we're more apt to reach our potential and we're more likely to hear, well done. That's pretty important. So why do we settle then? Well, before we get into that, I want to have a word of prayer and then we'll kind of kick things off. 
again, the series, we're going to have a series on never settling, but we're going to move forward by say, asking this question first, why do we settle? Then we're going to talk about some characters in the Bible, some characteristics and qualities that they possessed that I believe caused them to say, I'm not settling. And if we would possess those same characteristics and qualities, they would move us to never settle either, I believe. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. We'll invite Christ in. We certainly want him to do the work in our hearts and lives. It won't be a mere man. It's got to be the master that does that. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We come to you because without you, we can do nothing. Now, Lord, sometimes that's somewhat of a cliche. We think to ourselves, well, there's a lot of things I could do without God, but or the truth is we could do nothing. If you just remove the breath from our body to this very, this very moment, we could do nothing at all. Oh God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We ask that you would just speak to our hearts today through your word. May we be moved to do nothing but our best, to never settle for anything less than what you'd have for us. We desperately need you today. And Lord, if there be those that are here without Jesus Christ, may they come to him. May they recognize their need to accept and receive the Savior as Lord of their life. Bring conviction, bring change, and Lord, may you do your perfect work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So why do we settle then? I mean, it's a phenomenon that we see everywhere. We can look around us, even in our own lives probably, in the lives of others around us, and, and, and we can recognize the reality that people settle. Why is it that we settle? Why is it that those around us settle? Why is it that there's a culture that is willing to settle so often? Well, first of all, we get lazy. I know it's nothing monumental. You say, well, I could have guessed that. Absolutely you could have. I hope you did. And I hope you've recognized it maybe even in your own life. But let's face it, it's just a lot easier to do nothing sometimes. See, never settling would mean taking steps toward change, both personally and professionally. It would demand an investment of time, energy, and money even. It may even cut into our TV time, our sports interests, our hobbies, our recreation, or our leisure. Laziness is at epidemic proportions in the day and age in which we live. Therefore, is it any wonder that we settle so often in general? And we say to ourselves, yeah, but we're not of this world, but we are certainly affected by it. And, or should I say, infected by it. Some people refer to Paul Railton of Consent England as the laziest man in the world. Now, that's kind of difficult to prove, you know, the laziest man in the world. I mean, what would be the criteria, right? But his legal troubles certainly provide evidence that he's in the running for the title. You say, what do you mean? Well, in December of 2009, Railton was reported to the authorities by a cyclist who saw him walking his dog by driving his car slowly and holding the leash out the window. <laughs> I don't know about you, but you know, I, 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 try to, I try to picture that. I try to envision it. You know what I mean? Here's a guy driving down the road in his car, and he's got a leash sticking out, and there's a little dog. I see a tiny little dog, too. I don't know why. I don't see some big German shepherd. You know what I mean? A guy that obviously is that lazy to not walk his own dog probably has a really tiny dog. One of them, you know, heel snappers. But I can almost see those little legs, you know, like that. 
beside the car as he's driving along. He goes on to say it was a silly thing to do and there was an element of laziness involved. Really? He pled guilty to a charge of not being in proper control of a vehicle. He was fined 66 pounds and he was ordered not to drive for six months. He's in the running for the laziest man in the world. <laughs> laziness. It'll keep us from reaching our potential to keep us from hearing well done one day. It'll cause us to settle instead of never settling. See, the tragedy also is that settling most often places us in the category of wasting time. And that, quite frankly, is selfish and it is unscriptural. See, the Bible tells us in Ephesians, turn there, would you, Ephesians chapter 5? You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, why, why is wasting time selfish and, and unscriptural? Well, because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, 15, look there, we'll read it. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools. Now, that word circumspectly, let's just make it real simple. If I put blinders on like this, you know, I'm not walking circumspectly. But when I open up everything and I look, you know, I'm walking circumspectly. I'm keeping everything in view. I'm being very careful and cautious of steps. I'm keeping an eye on the horizon as well as up close. I'm always observing. I'm watching closely. But I'm also seeing things as a whole. Walking circumspectly, he goes on to say here, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, buying back the time that was lost maybe in your sinful state, making best use of your time, because the days are evil, wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We probably would say that if you were not following the will of the Lord, you were out of the will of the Lord. Is it not sinful to be out of God's will? I think it would be considered sinful in a sense. It would be certainly foolish, no doubt. But we know that we are ordered, commanded to walk circumspectly, to redeem the time, to, to make best use of our time. And can I tell you then, as a result then, that selfishness is unscriptural. Wasting time is unscriptural, and it is selfish, and it is, as we said, contrary to the Word of God. Now, one of the reasons why folks settle is that they're lazy. That'll cause us to settle. Number two, what's another reason? Well, we get comfortable. We get comfortable. In 1907, Robert Yerkes and John Dodson conducted one of the first experiments that pointed out a link between anxiety and performance. Here's what they did. They saw that mice became more motivated to complete mazes when given electric shocks of increasing intensity. And now some of you are going, oh, those poor little mice, they're getting shocked. They're okay. They're, they're, right now they're in retirement and they're doing extremely well. But they saw that these mice became more motivated to complete mazes when given electric shocks of increasing intensity, but only to a certain point. 
only up to a certain point. Above a certain threshold, they became, instead of, instead of it motivating them, it caused them to hide. Now they started running from it. They started hiding. You know, the same behavior has been seen in human beings. And it makes sense because in response to anxiety, in response to discomfort, the options usually are simply three. Either fight, meet the challenge. See, fight, meeting the challenge. Or flight, run away and hide. Or three, freeze, simply be paralyzed, just become paralyzed with fear. So again, he's saying basically we see the same thing. Whether it's a mouse or whether it's a man or a woman, the fact is is that this stimulus, this response to anxiety and discomfort is going to either bring us to a place where we meet challenges, where we forge ahead, or it's going to cause us to run away and hide, or it's going to cause us to literally freeze in our tracks and be paralyzed. Now while occupying the comfort zone, it's tempting to feel very safe in control, and that, that the environment itself is of an even keel. It's smooth sailing, right? And we like smooth sailing. And that's why so many settle. It's familiar and therefore comfortable. See, the danger is that a person's ceiling for growth is very low when remaining in the comfort zone, however. If you don't ultimately push through some some anxiety or you don't push through some difficulty, my friend, you won't grow. You won't ultimately achieve to the degree that you should. Again, a person's ceiling for growth is very low when we remain in the comfort zone. And if you and I ever hope to achieve substantial growth or success in any area of our life, we have to step outside of our comfort zone and bravely forge ahead. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now, again, I understand, you know, people say, well, you know, we're all different personalities. And my personality is just to not achieve. You know, I'm real comfortable sitting behind a, a big screen TV and doing nothing with my life but vegging out. Well, yeah, you may be comfortable doing that, but we're going to learn something about this element of never settling, that there's more to it than just you. We're going to get to that in just a few moments, but right now, keep in mind that never settling is not a good thing. I mean, that settling is not a good thing. That's what we learn. There are some hindrances. One, we already said get, we get lazy. Two, we get comfortable. Notice what happened to Genesis 12.1. We're going to see here uh, that... The Bible says, now, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will shew thee. Now, Abraham was commanded to leave his comfort zone. I called that this morning a comfort zone violation. Man, it just seems to me that God was a little bit outside his scope of reality here, that he somehow had... had bit off for Abraham more than he could chew, that somehow he was not being very realistic with Abraham, nor was he being very kind and considerate of Abraham to tell Abraham, command Abraham to get thee out of thy country, literally leave your, 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 your nation, your, 
your, the people that you were raised with, not just your family, but those around you, but then also from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I'll show thee. Four separate things that we see here that put him, require him to leave his comfort zone in order to accomplish the will of God. It's interesting here, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I'm seeing here out of thy country, literally, I have to leave the United States from thy kindred, you mean from Americans, from thy father's house, my family, and now I'm to go somewhere and I don't even know where? I think that's a comfort zone violation. How would you feel? And that's exactly what God required of Abraham. And may I say this, if it wasn't for Abraham's obedience, if it wasn't for him being willing to say, you know what, I'm gonna ignore those feelings. I'm gonna ignore, I'm gonna ignore my laziness probably because I'm sure at that point he was getting kind of lazy thinking about, oh, that's a lot. That's gonna be a lot of work to move that far, that far away to have to deal with all that mess. He might've even felt a little lazy. Maybe he wasn't lazy at all, but he'd certainly probably become comfortable there in his own nation, there with his own kindred, there in his own workspace and where his family resided, and the thought of leaving and not even knowing where he's supposed to end up, my goodness, that, my friend, is a comfort zone violation. But he did exactly what God told him to do. He bravely navigated the chilly waters of change, and he stepped outside that comfort zone, and he made his way into the will of God. So one of the reasons that we settle is that we get comfortable. A third reason, and the final one for our purposes, we're afraid or insecure. We settle because many times we just are afraid or insecure. See, fear is a powerful obstacle to overcome in our life. It, it's huge. And, and we're fearful of the unknown. Can you imagine Abraham for a moment? He doesn't even know where he's supposed to end up yet but he's supposed to trust God. He's supposed to never settle. Don't settle for that job you're in, Abram. Don't settle for that family you have. Don't just settle for the area you live in. Don't just settle for the country you're in. I have more for you than that. Don't settle. And Abraham's like, huh? See, fear is a powerful obstacle to overcome, and when we're fearful of the unknown, when we're fearful of failing or looking foolish or being inconvenienced or rejected or perceived as odd or unusual, it directly affects the choices we make. It affects the way we choose to go, the direction we go or what we do. Uh, through my years of high school, and I've shared this before, but I often found myself settling. What I found myself doing was, because I was fearful of failing to some degree, and what I mean by that is, I was fearful of giving my very best for fear that I would not be the best. So I settled for bees. And why not? That, that my dad was quite content with a bee. I went home with my bee and he'd say, well, you got a bee, good job. Now he didn't want C's and he certainly didn't want D's or F's. I didn't go to the doctors or hospitals much in my youth. But if I'd have got F's, I probably would have. <laughs> but he was content with a B, and so I found myself being content with a B. I didn't have to push myself. I didn't have to work that much harder. And the fact was B's came fairly simple or fairly easy as a whole. You could cram for a test and still get a B usually. But here's my point. 
I was afraid to give him my best because I could always fall back on this. So what'd you get in that class? I got a B, but I could have got an A. So how fast do you run the mile? I really don't want to share it because I'm fearful that it would really discourage many of you. You'd probably stop working out if you knew how fast I ran the mile. Let's just say my coach asked me one time if I had started yet. But anyway, the fact is, is, that, is that here I was running the mile, and they'd say, well, I, I, I got a, let's say, say I got an eight-minute mile. And of course, that's very slow. They'd say to me, I could say, yeah, but I could have ran it faster if I really tried. You, do you understand what fear does to us? It affects our decision. It affects how we do things. Man, I could have gotten a better grade. I could have gotten a, a better job. I could have done better in this area or that area, but I didn't really try that hard. Now, sometimes we do and we just fail, and we'll use that as excuses, but I believe many people, like myself, find themselves not wanting to give a perfect effort for fear that the outcome will not be perfect in their eyes. See, fuel, uh, fear fueled my behavior. And I, I settled because I feared failing and not living up to my standard even. I remember, do you remember reading about, reading in the Bible about the guy who never succeeded because he was so afraid of failing that he never gave it his best? I don't either. I don't remember that. You want to know Why? Because nobody remembers him. They're a dime a dozen. See, it's the guy or gal that never settled that you read about. And if you don't read about the guy or gal that never settled, you read about the one who failed because they did settle. But you don't really read about the guy who just never succeeded because he was so afraid of failing that he never gave it his best. He just gave it a college try. A good old college try. That's called mediocrity. And God says that he spews them out of his mouth. You don't read much about those in his Bible. Can I tell you, if we were honest today, as we look around our, our country and we, we, we view our culture, we are raising a generation to be content with mediocrity. Who cares if you win the trophy? It's just how you play the game. I don't know about you, but I want to win. It's funny, we're training our children not to have a competitive spirit but yet when they get in the corporate world, what is it? Competition. And then they fall to pieces. They get out in the world and all of a sudden they become a teenager and they're competing for the best looking girl and they don't reach or obtain the goal and they kill themselves. They haven't learned to accept failure. They haven't learned how to deal with, with not making the grade. They haven't been taught that winning is important, but if you don't win, you don't quit. You just keep on going until you can overcome and be victorious. See, you never settle. But this attitude of everybody's a winner creates a mindset of settling because everybody wins anyway. Why put out? It's called socialism. Thank you, preacher. You're pulling politics into it. You look and find out what socialism is and it, tell me it doesn't line up with that. It's a biblical principle there. You don't work, you don't eat. Sorry, Amen. didn't mean to get too scriptural. Amen. 
So there's three reasons why we settle. We get lazy, we get comfortable, we're afraid or we're insecure even. So instead of being lazy, comfortable, and afraid, or even insecure, we must exhibit the characteristics and qualities that ensure that we never settle then. And so what characteristics and qualities do we see in those throughout Scripture who never settled? I want to present the first one today, and then through the next week or so, we're going to look at a couple more. And once we finish that, then what I want to do is I want to look at specific areas that we cannot settle in, like our marriages, our child-rearing, our Christian walk and faith. And I want to look at them from the perspective, what does it look like when we settle? What does it look like when we never settle? And I just want to kind of look at that a little bit. And, and again, I, I'm not the smartest, you know, uh, smartest guy in the world. I'm not the sharpest knife in the box, so to speak. But let me tell you something. I think that this is a pretty practical thing. And I'm sad to say that in, from my experience, I have watched people, especially young people, middle-aged and even older, settle when they could have had something better. And I don't want to see that happen. Thus, never settle as a theme especially in our Christian lives and our walk with the Lord Jesus. And by the way, that affects every area of your life. So, number one, what characteristic, what quality did we see in those throughout Scripture who never settled? They had a heart for God. <laughs> they had a heart for God. Right off the bat, that comes to, to mind. Right off the bat, that's a, a, just a, an image that's so glaring from the scriptures. We can't help but see men and women who never settled. What, one of the characteristics that they possessed? A heart for God. First Chronicles, again, chapter 4, verse 10. Let's go back to our, our character here, Jabez. Let's look at his life for just a moment. It's interesting, really, when you think about how much Jabez can teach us, but how little God talked about him. We see these two verses in the Bible and we're like, wow, there ain't much there. But boy, they speak volumes to us today. His life is a shining example of someone that never settled. And notice what one of the characteristics that he possessed that was so indicative or so necessary, essential, if you will. First Chronicles 4.10. And Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coast and that thine hand might be with me. See, Jabez was concerned and fearful of going forward without God. He's asking here, wouldest thou bless me indeed, enlarge my coast, expand my influence, enable me to have, take more ground for you, God? And in this case, we, we see the Canaanites there in the land and it's potentially possible that Jabez was asking God to give him more ground, to help him to whoop the enemy, so to speak, to clear them out of the area. We know that when Israel went into the land, God had said, you wipe them out. You get rid of them because they're only going to corrupt you and corrupt the people if you don't. And so Jabez is saying, oh God, enlarge my coast. Oh God, enable me to get victory over the enemy. Boy, God said, well, man, that pleases me because that's exactly what I've commanded you to do. And if that's your heart, trust me, I'll be there with you. But Jabez is saying, I want all of that, but your hand needs to be with me. I do not want to go forward without you. And although he had experienced tremendous success to that point, although he had already experienced notoriety to that point in his life, he understood the temptation to become self-sufficient and independent of God. And by the way, 
can I share with you and tell you that independence is the very essence of the atomic nature. We have this idea that it's got to be some gross, vile, wretched sin in particular. No, it's not. I'm telling you that the, the very essence of atomic nature is that of independence of God. It started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were extremely dependent upon God, but Satan comes along and says, you don't need him. Trust me, you can be God's too. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. noted, the devil did not tempt Adam and Eve to steal, to lie, to kill, to commit adultery. He tempted them to live independent of God. C.S. Lewis, he wrote, and C.S. Lewis, of course, was a great man of God, and he wrote a number of books, but he said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Wow. Man, he's saying, listen, preacher, you don't just need some improvement. You don't just need some, uh, you know, uh, reform in your life. When I see you without Jesus Christ, I see someone that stands there with a, with, with, a, with a torch and a sword saying, I dare you to try to take charge of this. I dare you to impede upon me myself. I'm my own God. I don't need you, God. I'm independent of you. And that is the very essence of the nature, that atomic nature that we possess. Isaiah captures that truth. Look, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. We could go to a number of other verses, but because of time, let's just look even at this one simple, one simple verse. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. We know that he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Here it is though, listen now, watch it closely. We have turned everyone to his what? Own way. We've turned everyone to his what? We've turned everyone to his what? Let me tell you something. That is the essence of the atomic nature. Our own way. Independence of God. Jim Berg points out in his book, Changed into His Image, our biggest problem is not the environment in which we have been reared. It's not the evil that has been done to us by others. It's not the limitations we feel so acutely. Our biggest problem is a heart that wants its own way in opposition to God's way. That's the big problem in our lives. Tozer, again, a tremendous man of God and other writers, has wrote a number of books and in, has tremendous insights. He said this. He said, the natural man is a sinner because, and only because, he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. In all else, he may willingly accept the sovereignty of God. In his own life, he rejects it. For him, God's dominion ends where his begins. For him, self becomes self, capital S, self. And in this, he unconsciously imitates Lucifer, that fallen son of the morning who said in his heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the most high God. Yet so subtle is self, it's scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. 
His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on, on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, he goes on to say, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Yet because it is natural, it appears to be good. I mean, we, we raise our children and we say things like, you need to be independent thinker. You need to be independent in your life. You don't need to be, have somebody telling you what to do. You need to be independent, we tell our boys. Be independent, be strong. We tell our girls, be independent, be strong, be a self-thinker. I mean, we go through this process where we're training them to be able to live their life independent of others and the influence of others to the point where, unfortunately, they've come to the place where they say, I am independent even of God. And we don't train our children to even obey us in many cases. So why would they obey a God who, by nature, they despise and reject? You say, my kids don't. They're good kids. Your kids are just as much sinners as mine or anybody else's. They're just as big a sinner as you are. Because we're born into sin, and that nature is that of independence of God. I don't want God on the throne. I want myself on the throne. I want to do what I want to do. I want to go where I want to go. I want to be what I want to be. You say, but I thought you said never settle. Eh, we're getting there. See, Jabez had already come to the conclusion that his heart was prone to wandering, that his natural tendency was to forge ahead independent of God, that he was helplessly destined to run amok without God's grace and guiding hand. He said that thine hand might be with me. Jabez had a heart for God. And his greatest pursuit was God himself and not simply the blessings that God bestowed upon him. And that's huge. I want you to turn over to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. There in Job chapter 1, we're going to see that Job was tested and found to be faithful, but before that, his integrity and his, his sincerity was questioned. It was questioned by the accuser of the brethren, none other than Satan himself. And can I tell you that today even, Satan is accusing the brethren. He's there before God at times saying, oh boy, let me show you your, let me tell you something about Mark O'Donnell. Let me tell you something about this brother or this sister. Watch what he tells them. Look at how he accuses. Watch what he contends. In Job chapter 1, verse 8, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth? a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Wow. What a commentary on the life of Job. What an amazing testimony he had before God. 
Look at verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? You see the accuser of our brethren there? Does Job fear God for nothing? Watch what he goes on to say. And he implies some things, pretty wicked things. Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? By the way, that was all true. He wasn't lying yet. And he wasn't really telling any falsehoods. He goes, thou hast blessed the work of his hands? Yes, God did. And his substance is increased in the land? Absolutely. Hold on, watch it now. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. The only reason Job fears you, God, the only reason Job loves you, God, the only reason Job yields to your leadership is because you give him all these wonderful things. You take away all the blessings you've given him, and he will curse you. Can I tell you that in my lifetime, like you probably, You've watched people who loved the Lord, served the Lord, gave their best to Jesus until God allowed someone special to be taken in their life. Until God permitted a tragedy to come into their life. Until they lost that dream job. Until they lost a wife or a husband. Until they lost a child. Until they lost something that was near and dear to their heart. Isn't it sad when Satan's right? But he wasn't right with Job. Job didn't serve God because of what he could get from God. He served God because he was worthy to be served. Job says in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine, in, mine own ways before him. I'm going to keep walking right. I'm going to keep talking truth. I'm going to keep being faithful to God. It doesn't matter what happens. If he kills me, I'm still going to love him. I'm still going to be there in his corner. It's not for what he can do for me. It's because of who he is. See, the heart of God, to have a heart for God is to consider Christ your greatest goal. And to walk with him, your greatest achievement. What would you consider your greatest achievement today? How many times do we look at our life and we say things like, well, I bought my own house. I finally paid it off. That's my greatest achievement. I've been married for 30, 40, 50 years. Oh, great achievement. I raised all my children to be Self-sufficient. <laughs> At least they don't have to come home and roost. Hopefully they love the Lord, I pray. Greatest achievement. You know what our greatest achievement as a believer ought to be? Successful walk with Christ. Worse than failing is succeeding without God. So we noted that the essence of the atomic nature is self. That's what we noted. And that self is prone to every obstacle that causes us to settle. See, self is prone to laziness. Self is prone to comfort, to fear, and to insecurity. It's prone to all of that. See, it's only when we have a heart for God and we place his will above ourself 
that we ever overcome the many obstacles that cause us to settle then. We think of Gideon in chapter 6. The Bible tells us that he was hiding out from the Midianites. He was fearful for his very life. He was, he was threshing wheat, but he was doing it in secret for fear of what might transpire and take place. And yet we find that the angel of the Lord in verse 12 appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Do you realize there's Gideon? And he's fearful of everything. He's scared to move forward. I'm sure that he's holding back in many areas of his life because of that fear. And God steps up and says, oh, by the way, you're a mighty man of valor. Just want you to know that. I want you to understand, Gideon, that I have so much more for you than you see for yourself. You can't even wrap your mind around what I want to do with you and through you, if you allow me to do it in you and through you. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, the Bible says, but as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Can I tell you, God wants so much more for you than you even want for yourself. You say, but I want a good paying job and I want a good family and I want this and that, but I'm telling you, God wants more for you than you even want but you'll not find it outside of God. You need a heart for God. Because see, the, the tendency, the natural man, the self man, ultimately gets a little bit comfortable. It gets a little bit uh, uh, apathetical, if you will, and ultimately says, you know what, enough's enough. I have accomplished enough. I have, I have arrived enough times. I've done enough. I have enough in the bank. I have this and I have that. And not everyone comes to that place, but I promise you, many do. Why is that? Because the flesh says, cool it, rest, take it easy. It's all right now. I'm going to tell you something. You need a heart for God because we got to die to this whole flesh as a believer. You never have a good enough relationship with God. You never read the Bible as much as you probably should. You never pray like you ought to, but can I tell you the flesh says you have. But when you got to walk in a heart for God, a heart for God, a heart that says, all I want is Jesus. All I want is to draw nigh to him. All I want is to know him better. Then all of a sudden... What he wants for you will become what you want for yourself, and you will never settle. Let me state these simple thoughts, and we're done. The man or woman who has a heart for God fears success without God. Number two, the man or woman who has a heart for God finds success with God. Number three, the man or woman who has a heart for God faces success with gratitude toward God. See, God has so much for his children. And God, he looks down upon us this morning and he longs to hear a heart that wants more of him. That wants more from him. And that wants more for him. Abraham Lincoln, he said, my great concern is not whether you have failed, but whether you are content. Never settle. If you don't have a heart for God today, 
if your ambitions are outside of his reality or him himself, then my friend, you need to get a heart for God today. You think you can accomplish a lot without God? My friend, you don't even have a clue what God could do with him, with you, if you'll submit to him. Get a heart for God. All those wonderful things that you think you can't get if you serve God, I'm telling you, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The devil's lied to us. And let me tell you what, he continues to tell us, eh, it's good enough. Your Christianity's good enough. Eh, you're a good enough parent. Eh, you're a good enough husband or wife. Eh, you're a good enough member of the church. And the devil doesn't want you to ultimately arrive at the destination of potential, full potential. He wants you to squander it, throw it away. Because see, ultimately, it's God who gets the glory. The devil never wants him glorified. Let's get a heart for God today. Let's develop a characteristic and a quality that will enable us to never settle. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time together, and we thank you for all you do for us. Lord, um, we need you today. Lord, there may be somebody in our midst that's lost without Christ. They, they're settling for life in this life only instead of understanding they can have life now and for eternity. I pray, Lord, that they would not settle for simply the, the wisdom of the world, but they would recognize that the wisdom of Christ is key Oh, God of heaven, we pray for your leadership today. Now, bless that lost man or woman. May you convict them of their sin and show them a great need for receiving and accepting Christ. And as believers, may we stop settling, but instead, Lord, may we take steps to develop characteristics that will cause us to say, I'm never settling. And one of those is a heart for you, to draw close to you so that we have the power and the ability to say no to self. When self might be hindered or hampered, Lord, when we're... When we got a heart for you, we're going to be inspired and empowered by you and enabled to overcome the obstacles that stand between us and reaching our full potential and fulfilling the purpose and will for our life that you have for us. And Lord, bless us today. May you help us meet our needs. And Lord, maybe somebody's settling in an area of their life. May you reveal that to them and show them why that's something that needs to be addressed. But may it begin today in our hearts, making a choice to have a heart for you. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every